Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Laos. How do I describe it? It's a place that I was in for a short amount of time. Kind of feels like a dream now, like a bit of a blur. But it's a place where I had some really intense experiences. It's a magical place. Everybody knows that I'm a big fan of Bourdain. And it was the first place I went to that I saw with my own eyes before I saw on his show. And there's a particular scene I remember watching. I was at my friend Kevin's apartment in Bay Ridge. And I saw Tony on the flat barge, the boats that cross across the Mekong. And he's there with a motorbike, gray skies, chocolate brown river. And I remember being in that exact spot. But I didn't have a film crew, and I didn't know the language, and I was lost, and I didn't know how to get to the other side. And so I thought, when watching his show, I got you this time, Tony. I beat you. I got there to tell my story before you could tell it. It's not an amazing place because Anthony Bourdain went there or because I went there. It's an amazing place because it's beautiful, it's unique, and the people are absolutely lovely. And so, since going to Laos, I returned to the States and I wanted to feature aspects of, of Lao culture. I was fortunate enough to be linked up with Manila South Amavong. He is a chef. And we were linked up by Greg from Food and Footprints. And so I had Manila on the podcast and we shared whiskey in his apartment. A few days later, he had a pop-up event that I went to. It was absolutely delicious. And the tastes brought me back to Laos. Then earlier this year, while traveling through California, I was fortunate enough to meet up with Lao author Van Bender. And I got to break bread with her entire family and her mother and her kids at a Lao barbecue joint. It was incredible. So these are the experiences that I've had that I love to share with you. Not to be braggadocious, but to show you that there are amazing things out there that you can participate in as well. Go to Laos, I'm telling you. Go to Laos. Try Lao food if you've never had it before. And so the flip side of that is in learning a lot about Lao culture and learning about the heartbreak. A large part of that stems from the Vietnam War and America's participation in it. I'm going to read you a few a few points here from Legacies of War, if you go to legaciesofwar.org. And this is if you click on Secret War in Laos. So just listen in for a little bit. From 1964 to 1973, the U.S. dropped more than 2 million tons of ordnance on Laos during 580,000 bombing missions. It's equal to a plane load of bombs every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. This makes Laos the most heavily bombed country per capita in history. The bombings were part of the U.S. secret war in Laos to support the Royal Lao government against the Pathet Lao and to interdict traffic along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The bombings destroyed many villages and displaced hundreds of thousands of Lao civilians during the nine-year period. Up to a third of the bombs dropped did not explode leaving Laos contaminated with vast quantities of unexploded ordnance, UXO. Over 20,000 people have been killed or injured by UXO in Laos since the bombing ceased. The wounds of war are not only felt in Laos. When the Americans withdrew from Laos in 1973, hundreds of thousands of refugees fled the country, and many of them ultimately resettled in the United States. You know... I feel really fortunate to have the experiences that I have through the podcast and through my travels. Earlier in life, I walked around with a chip on my shoulder. I wasn't very nice. I always had my guard up. It's not a great way to live. And I think ultimately what broke that was traveling. It was going to places and being welcomed into homes, into communities, 
having conversations with strangers, breaking bread with strangers, sharing a drink, a meal, a conversation, a story, and ultimately saying, wow, like <laughs> people truly are good all around the world. There's a lot of bad going on in the world, but the everyday person in most places is good and wants to share their culture and their story and their life with you. And so that's why when I read stuff like this about a place that I've grown to love, it's like, it's like a gut punch. So that's why you know, I'm in support of granting rights to refugees and protections to refugees and to immigrants. I mean, that's another story. We don't have to get into that now. But I say all this to say that Laos holds a special place in my travels. It's a place I want to go back to. And so I'm incredibly excited to share the story of the guest that I had on today's podcast. My guest is Rita Pitmixai. She is a Lao American, and she hosts a podcast called Healing Out Loud, L-A-O apostrophe D. And her mission is to reconnect people from the Lao diaspora, the spreading out of Lao people around the globe, immigrants, refugees, and she's forming a community and she's sharing stories and she's giving a platform for Lao Americans to be seen and to be heard. And I think that's a really incredible and beautiful thing. I was fortunate enough to connect with her. We did so over the phone. She's in California. I'm here in Brooklyn. And just a boisterous, bubbly personality. And I'm just really glad that I got to share her story with you. So please go to the show notes for this episode after my ramble here. And you can find links to all of Rita's stuff, to her website, social media, and stuff like that. Give her an ad, give her a follow. Shoot me an email at the Voyages of Tim Vetter. If you're listening for the first time or if you're a fan of Rita and her podcast, what I've done in the past and, and what I'll do for today is just randomly some people that contact me, um, if we engage in a good dialogue or maybe just whatever, maybe you just contact me, I'll send you something. And so this time Rita's got really cool shirts for her podcast and like every possible color for a couple people. I can't, I can't do it for everyone, folks. I don't make, you know, don't make much money, but I will send a couple people a shirt. So reach out to me. And uh, let me know if you like this episode and maybe you'll get a shirt. Also, if you go to the show notes for this episode, you will find my Patreon account. That is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. You know what it is. It's a subscription service where you can give monthly and uh, it goes a long way to helping this podcast to keep the stories coming. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy this conversation with Rita. This is episode number 130. Well, listen, first of all, thank you. Uh, this is really exciting for me. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess, um, you know, well, I'll, I'll say at the outset that any sort of ignorance on my part uh, in terms of not knowing things is not a willful ignorance. Um, no. <laughs> because, you know. No, that's okay. That's why we're here to learn, right? Yeah, exactly. And like, I feel so stupid for this because I've had uh, some guests on before who are Lao and I still can't get right if I'm correct in saying Lao or Laotian. Is there a preference? Well, you know, it, it really depends for a person because I don't think it, it, there's a correct answer. I mean, there's a recent article that talked about the nuances between Lao and Laotian. And, you know, for me, I've gotten... You know, I've had my own identity development over time and having used to identify as that, but now probably identifying as Lao, Lao Isan American, you know, that's a very, uh, that's a very specific nuance as well. But, you know, 
Uh, I think it's very personal. Like identity is very personal per person. So um, La Ocean, usually if people aren't aware, it comes from a colonized French term of Lao, which means Lao, um, of Lao origin, Lao TN. Ah. Um, and then it translated to La Ocean over time. And then, uh, so, you know, some people, uh, you know, it, it's definitely become normalized as um Anybody, um, persons, things, objects, food that originate from Laos is Laotian. And then Lao people, but which is a very specific ethnic group, um, identify as Lao. And they, you know, like in the, even the language is Lao. So it really depends. So, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, for me, I'm like, you know, you identify how you identify and I want people to make make sure that they feel safe uh, but I would say you know it's, it's always okay um, to ask and and then they'll let you know cool thank you for that clarification um, and so so people understand Isan being a region and if I'm correct that sort of overlaps the border with Thailand as well yeah well Isan um, from my own understanding and from other people's storytelling is an ethnic group in Laos that used to be that specific geographic region used to be a part of Laos, but then Thai Sayam, which is a different ethnic group, um, colonized Laos and redrew the border. And so those Lao people did not um, get a chance to self-identify themselves at the time. And so the Thai people who colonized them didn't want to call them Lao because they're on Thai territory. They didn't want to call them Thai because they're not Thai. So I think either they identified as Isan or the, the government did that, but that's a part of where my mother grew up. So I wanted to honor her story and that's why I identify as Isan. So it's funny too, because Lao people call those people Thai Isan. Thai people call those people Lao Isan. Mm. So it's like, who owns this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so it's like, no one wants to, no one wants to own this region. So, you know, that's, that's that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, again, thank you for, uh, I'm learning here. So thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is that I also had to dig deep. I didn't really learn about these terms or even identify it as Isan because I had a very strong Lao dad who was like, your mom's not Thai, she's not Isan, she's Lao, you know? Um, and, you know, that was how he trained us to think. But then I, after learning for some time, I realized like my mom, she's from Thailand, but I didn't get why she, like, I was like, why is she from Thailand if she's loud? You know, right, right. So I had to dig deep too. And then uh, going to Thailand um, and meeting my aunts as an adult, like a young adult, um, I went in 2013. I was like, oh, so they do speak between Lao and Thai. So it's a mixture and they are Isan. Like even one of my aunts was like uh, telling me, or telling um, our family members, they're like, oh, don't speak Thai to her, speak loud to her, because that's what she understands. Ah. So there's a lot of nuance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So I was thinking of like uh, where in your timeline to start these questions. So I'm going to start with this and I'll, I'll sort of build forward and backward through time from here. But um, I had heard of you through social media. So what? I'm not the biggest social media person, but it has been a really valuable resource for the podcast. Um, I had, uh, do you know Van Bender? She wrote uh, a book called Mommy Eats Fried Grasshoppers. Oh, I'm, I'm familiar with Mommy Eats Fried Grasshoppers, yes. Okay, cool. So I, I had an amazing experience with her and her family and they took me out for Lao Barbecue in California at a place, I hope I'm not screwing up the name, but I think it's called Crazy Barbecue. And through- oh, yeah, I did recently went there. It's oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, yeah. So through having them as a friend on Instagram, like you popped up as a suggested friend or however that algorithm works, and I checked you out and I was like, whoa, this is awesome because if there's any group that is underrepresented in terms of storytelling uh, and in terms of having uh, like mainstream fixture in American culture- it certainly would be Lao Americans. Uh, so I checked out your podcast and I was like, oh man, I'd love to have her on. So I think a good place to start with is why you started the podcast and sort of why you thought it was a necessary thing for your community. Uh, 
Yeah. The, you know, the concept of applying it in podcast form actually wasn't even a thing. Um, and so it started off when I was having this conversation with my big sis, Kula. Um, my goal was to bring healing to the Lao diaspora. Well, actually, specifically Lao Americans, because that's my experience and framework. Uh, and so I come from North Carolina. Um, my family grew up in a primarily white community there. And so we had about maybe two or three, four or five Lao families within a 10, 15 mile radius. So I knew what it was like to grow up in a very isolated area, pretty racist, um, <laughs> you know, what have you. Yeah. Um, and so for me, you know, it, I was always on a constant journey to find more about my Lao community, but also because, um, my, my dad is an amazing storyteller and, um, and, you know, I would get so many great doses of our family history from him, but then I didn't get represented in mainstream media. So a lot of my identity over time, you know, I was in a crisis. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't until I came to UCLA for grad school that I discovered, you know, the empowerment of having Asian Americans being represented in media. But even then, there was such lack of allow representation. So, you know, one of my first, um, I guess, uh, mentors, um, I mentioned her before, but uh, Big Sis Kulap, um, she's the first Lao American mentor, Big Sis, um, that I ever had. And she was a podcaster. And, you know, it just so happened that we met um, uh, went at a Lao American Writers Summit in San Diego and we didn't really connect until maybe a year later, um, had conversations just about, you know, bringing more resources to our Lao community, creating and cultivating a progressive Lao space. Um, and so, you know, through meeting her, meeting other amazing Lao Americans and building a um, cultivated Los Angeles community, which uh, it, its goal is to have the people of Laos anyone who has origins in Laos be represented in front and behind the camera. So that's one facet um, that I bring into the podcast world. But I'm having a conversation with her about, I want to bring more Lao, um, no, I want to bring more healing to our Lao community because, you know, we're pretty young in the States, about maybe 30, 40, 50 years um, old, depending on what wave you went, you came in the States. And so, you know, my training also on top of having Asian American studies at UCLA, I did a master's in social welfare. So I did a lot of um, clinical therapy, uh, wellness work, uh, mental health, and uh, embodied healing, things of that sort, and coaching. And so, you know, for me, I saw so many uh, other marginalized communities benefit from these resources. And then, um, and I was seeing all this take place. And I realized that you know, there, there's a huge opportunity to actually bring this to the Lao diaspora. And so uh, I was telling Kulap, maybe, you know, there could be a conference that I organize and or we organize under the Los Angeles entity or things of that sort. Um, and then she just mentioned, oh, why not start with a podcast? And it was and then it didn't really click with me. I was like, because I never really listened to podcasts before, you know, never made time and never thought it was a thing. Uh, and so I was like, hmm, okay, maybe we'll figure that out. And, you know, one year later, I listened to so many different podcasts and then formulated um, the concept and then finally launched in March 2019. And so that's, you know, like a long story, <laughs> but like that's kind of where Healing Out Loud kind of took its course through all of these different life experiences. Oh, that's amazing. Are you, um, in your family, are you first generation born in the States? Yes. First generation born in the States. And so I identify as being second gen, um, mm -hmm. but yes, being the first generation being born in the States. So you mentioned the loud diaspora. Now, uh, I'll clarify that a little bit and then I'll ask you uh, to help me out. But uh, I'm sure most people know that uh, a diaspora is essentially like the spreading out of a people away from um, the country of origin, right? And anyone with mm -hmm. a, a high school education in this country probably thinks first of like the African diaspora, 
which is mostly due in part to the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, what is the the source of the Lao diaspora? The source of the Lao diaspora started with the secret civil war. And so it's, it's dubbed the secret war for a reason because like, nobody knew about it. But basically, my understanding is that there was French colonization um, that took place not only in Laos, but Vietnam and Cambodia and extracting resources and trying to change the system to be more French in these different government systems. And then there was infiltration of, um, I guess, communist ideology uh, into Laos. And there was a Ho Chi Minh Trail um, that took place there. And so the U.S. got involved eventually and started bombing because they wanted to contain communism and spread more capitalism. And so Lao forces got involved. Um, and so there's a lot of push and pull of resources back and forth from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand got involved um, because they're the source of uh, the refugee camps before um, a lot of the Lao and Lao, Laotian people, people of Laos, um, got dispersed to different parts of the world. And so, um, you know, my dad got involved because he was actually part of the guerrilla warfare there and tried to fight for the freedom of Lao people from communist takeover. So, you know, like the fall of Saigon um, happened April 1975. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I think a lot of the way the war is being tailored is through the Vietnam War lens, right? Um, but nobody wants to talk about how the U.S. bombed uh, Laos heavily. Actually, Laos is the most bombed country in the world per capita, right? Um, about 2 million tons of ordinances, and there's still about 70, you know, like <laughs> 70 tons. Uh, you know, there's just so much still left over there. They're still detonating um, children today. So, you know, the source comes from just so much um, political push and pull of resources in Laos. And so after that took place, um, families got spread out all over the world, including the U.S., Canada, France, Australia. Um, and, and I recently learned New Zealand and Germany, Argentina. So uh, it, it, it definitely, um, you know, it, it comes from that that specific moment in time. Yeah. Wow. I was going to try to sound impressive with some of those facts, but you just gave a, a, a really. <laughs> well, when you're in this work, you just you just have to dig. <laughs> you're always trying to find out. Well, yeah. I mean, it is pretty incredible. Uh, I'm going to circle back to some of that in a little bit, but um, I just read a book called uh, "The River of Time." by a man named John Swain, who was a war correspondent, uh, primarily in Saigon and in Phnom Penh. But he also talks a lot about Laos and about how, yeah, the CIA program literally called the secret war, um, and it's the most bombed country per capita uh, ever. Uh, and, and his book is problematic in some ways, Rita, because like I don't want to promote this aspect of it, but it his young man's lens at the time was that of like, oh, I'm in a place where the women are very exotic and like sort of over-sexualized oh. Southeast Asian women, which is uh, something that's been done a lot. But something I think was kind of valuable from his book was talking about how when the U.S. pulled out of, you know, what the West called Indochina, right? So Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, like it didn't end there for people in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And so there was like communist retaliation. There were re-education camps, which I want to get back to in a second. Um, there were like, as you pointed out to this day, residual effects of um, chemicals and bombs exploded then and ordinances that are unexploded until somebody walks over them today. But then there was also the phenomenon of people trying to leave en masse it's, this is where you get, I mean, I'm not educating you, but for listeners, this is where you get the term boat people, right? People who quite literally left on boats. Um, mm -hmm. Many folks lost at sea. Many people intercepted on the islands around Thailand where awful things were happening to the people that were intercepted. So is, is it that coupled with um, sort of the experience of being in a place here in the States with a new culture and the difficulty of that when you, when you talk about um, the need for healing, is, is that the, the healing that you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. All of that, you know, in terms of war trauma, 
violence. I mean, and, and the fact that there was such repression of our communities, like access to education, food, clean water, things of that sort is what my dad has shared with us um, that the government was keeping from its citizens. And so, you know, that uh, gets displaced to just a different part of the world, right? You know, the way that you're treated and, you know, granted the U.S. definitely um, was uh, a huge part in saying that if we can't win the war, uh, you know, or spread capitalism, you know, in this, these different parts, then we'll take you, you know, for um, emergency and relief and things of that sort. So a lot of the community um, abroad, I can't speak for everybody, but the majority of what I know and my knowledge, especially in the States, have are low income and, you know, there's a lot of trauma and, uh, you know, uh, even my dad, he was just sharing, like, when he escaped and swam all across the Mekong River that separates, um, you know, Thailand and Laos. And he came to, a, he landed in Thai territory and then was captured by Thai police. And, wow. you know, I think that's really common or even people are risk um, to get shot, like crossing the Mekong River. And I heard this quote once, it's like, nobody ever, wants to go off the land unless the water is safer than the land. And, and then, you know, even in that case, the, the water wasn't even that safe. Right. Um, and so it's like trauma after trauma after trauma. And then you come to the States and then you're on welfare for some time, but also you're put in destitute areas where there's actually not a lot of different resources or people don't know even about the war so they don't know how to help you. So there's so many layers to that. And over time, um, if whatever's not resolved, like the international trauma of like poverty, of of low education can absolutely be passed to the next generations forward. And so for me, you know, I've had the privilege though of having a father and mother that was very resourceful and my dad's uh, very educated to a to a certain degree in Laos, he was able to get higher ed and, you know, and go to a military academy, which is kind of equivalent of West Point or Air Force Academy here in the States. But he didn't finish because of the communist regime. But, you know, I, I, I share that because there's, you know, a very specific narrative that I have too. But also what I see in my community is that, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of parents that don't share their history. So there's a gap there. And a lot of children are still seeking like what, what what's my history where do I come from mm. I don't see it in history books you know I can't ask my parents and so I'm kind of lost and so for me part of that healing is coming back home is really understanding of that we come from very resilient people that we're not just our war trauma as well because that's a narrative that I've seen um, for a long time before I started the podcast and so I wanted to nuance that a little bit and have people understand that, yes, even though we come from these destitute challenges and situations, that we also have built such a rewarding experience here in the States. I mean, a lot of us are now, in, uh, you know, writers or activists or organizers, engineers. Um, and so I wanted to highlight that that narrative to give people um, somewhat of a promising future, right? Um, and then also provide wellness resources and things of that sort so people can understand that, yeah, like like even if we don't get to see these main uh, these narratives of our people in mainstream, that we can tell the stories, that we can gather some type of collective archive um, to remember ourselves and to mourn what happened and then to heal and then to move forward. That is a beautiful point, and I just put in my notes to to put a pin in that and to unpin that later, uh, because it's going to connect me back to something I had in my notes uh, that I want to address. But there's a couple of things that maybe are still a little bit heavy that yeah. I was thinking of while you were talking that I wanted to unpack a bit. Uh, I'm reading this book right now. It's actually propping up the phone so that you can see me, and it's called uh, "On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous," and that writer is a Vietnamese American. And I was reading it on the train today coming back from work and he was recounting a story of like bullying when he was young. And 
I was thinking back to like schoolyard type of stuff when I was a kid. And for whatever reason, I think maybe I have an explanation for it, but racism that was geared towards Asian folks was almost, almost, I don't know if normalized is the word, but almost seen as a lesser offense, I think, when I was younger than racism geared towards other people. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that or if that's something that you experienced as a young person in school and things like that. But I was wondering and thinking about and sort of connecting the past things I've read if if perhaps that's because there's this stereotype or perception that, you know, people that come from Asia, even though it's a massive continent and that makes up many different types of people, that those people are often successful in the United States, right? Like there's this idea that Asian folks do well in school and have prosperous mm-hmm. businesses and things like that. And I'm thinking like maybe that's where that normalization came from and that most of that racism was like such a lack of understanding of people because it lumped any, you know, as a young person, it lumped all Asian folks into this like Chinese category. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's something that you experienced growing up in South, in, in the Carolinas. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think what you're alluding to is the model minority myth. Yeah. And, okay. You know, race in itself is a social construct, right? Um, and it's created by um, Western colonizers that um, gave access and power and privilege to certain groups of people, aka Europeans or white settlers and other people of color, like no resources. And, and so, um, I think it definitely translated to impact Asian American communities. I mean, even Asian American as a term is a very political term to unite all folks of Asian descent um, to come together and build more solidarity with the black and brown communities. Um, but um, I definitely, my parents experienced this in the South. I mean, I can't remember a lot of different instances. I can definitely write a book about that as well, growing up loud in the South. But one thing I do remember um, was that my dad would tell me how he asked one of our neighbors before we really got to know them if they could help with our pipes, like our pipes were leaking and something in the bathroom was happening. And the neighbor said, oh, I don't know how to fix this. And so we were like, okay, you know, time has passed. And then there's a thunderstorm um, that happened and the lightning struck and it struck a tree from one of our other neighbors' house into our territory and then over the fence that separated us. And so everybody from the community came together to cut down the tree to remove the different types of um, 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 uh, tree limbs and things of that sort. And then my dad finally had a conversation with a neighbor who didn't uh, know how to fix the pipes in our house or didn't help us and was like, hey, uh, why didn't you help us fix Um, the pipes that one time and the neighbor said uh, well it's because I thought y'all were Mexican (laughs) so (laughs) like there's a lot of things happening here (laughs) and like you know I'm not racist but you know uh, I just don't like them having a lot of different families like in one home like six seven of them and so so first of all it's like where did you even guess that we're Mexican (laughs) second of all like, where is that assumption coming from that we would do that, right? And so there's a lot happening there. And I guess that was one of the, the most, I guess, like, one of the stories that really stands out to me, uh, how we are racialized. Because, granted, the people in the South, the white people, uh, a lot of where we grew up uh, were low income, that they did not have, like, a higher education. Uh, and so... You know, let a, you know, there was a growing Mexican uh, population in um, Asheboro, North Carolina, and then, you know, in less than 1% Asian. So you can imagine, like, who are these people, right? Let alone Lao people, yeah. right? And refugees. Um, and so it was just so interesting to kind of like, um, I guess, retell that story and recount it because. You know, we are actually very close now. Our families are like family. We treat each other like family, like community, and they've learned how to grow and and support us um, and watch over our um, house when we're gone. And so um, I think that's the power of conversation. But 
Um, in the beginning, it was very hard because we did look foreign to them, right? And there's a lot of xenophobia. And, and then even in the school structures, um, in high school, I remember one of my classmates would tell me, like, oh, like, you got into UNC because you're a, mo- a minority, right? Or you're a model minority. And then when you get into UNC, there was a, um, a director of a diversity and multicultural affairs person there when I was trying to instill an Asian coordinator to help recruit more Asian folks because I rarely see Lao folks, right? And then rarely see Asian Americans as, um, you know, a, a group that needs support. So I wanted to be that person in a very predominantly black and brown space. And she also was bought into the model minority myth and said, oh, like the Asian people historically don't have issues. And so over time, you know, that term model minority came from, I believe, an article where um, they highlighted how Japanese people or maybe it was Chinese people um, over, I guess, the, you know, decades have been able to make it, quote unquote. And so they're dubbed a the model minority myth. And then also that term is used to be very anti-Black, right? It's like, oh, like you should be like this, this good immigrant or this good person of color. Um, and, it, you know, it just, it, and it uses a tool to divide a lot of us who are still, you know, being racialized differently, but still impacted by, you know, forms of racism. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, like, you know, long story short, I think there's definitely a level of racism that we go through. Uh, I mean, you know, I would say racialized differently than black and brown folks, but at the same time, um, oppressed in a, you know, similar manner. Yeah, I've heard, I mean, I I don't want to really get into this author, but uh, I read a book by Thomas Sowell. And again, I don't want to get into like the politics behind, uh, or his stuff's pretty loaded and you could, you could talk for a while on either side of the issue, but he used that term and that's sort of uh, one of the things that I was referencing for maybe why that would be why that racism sort of normalized. Um, Rita, you've mentioned your dad a couple of times and I think you produced like a documentary short about him. Sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, sorry. I know I sound far away to you. Um, You produced a, a, a short documentary about your father. Is that true? Yes, yes. Is that available anywhere? Because I couldn't find it to watch it before this. Oh. <laughs> no, it's, it's not available. Um, um, so I, I do have my own link if people want to view it at different institutions or universities or organizations. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely, you know, it's, it's available upon request. Um, and I've been so you know, grateful that I had the opportunity to even make it and screen at over 10 plus um, locations across the states. Um, so definitely um, one of my first, um, yeah, uh, proud, successful projects. I saw a description for it. Uh, it might have even been something that you wrote. Did he go through a re-education camp in Laos? Yeah. Whoa. He did for about five years. And uh, this is before he met my mother, but after the fall of Saigon that impacted um, the communist regime in Laos, uh, he was part of, you know, he was sent to re-education camp for five years. Um, and he, he traveled actually to a lot of different ones across Laos uh, and, you know, recounted different stories about that. But they're called seminar, um, seminar camps. Whoa. He's talked to you about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk about it also in my my film a little bit um, where he relays some of those memories. But, you know, to us, it's just terrible. He said that um, each person would take turns um, eating the piece of meat that they would share, about 20 people and one piece of meat. So they would ration that out per day and then wake up early in the morning to build infrastructure um, for Laos that was ruined by the war, um, could barely pick up a, um, like a pound of rock because he was so weak. 
Um, and so they really try to infiltrate new ways of being Lao under the communist government. And, you know, I don't know the full details of it, but, you know, I could never imagine what it was like to, you know, get captured and, and be tortured in that way. Yeah. Um, in regards to, cause you said that you also have done social work and this is part of your training, uh, in addition to to sharing stories and connecting people, I know you've referenced uh, intergenerational trauma, and you know science is actually showing that, like through like uh, epigenetics, that trauma might even be passed on at the genetic level. Um, there hasn't mm-hmm. been like you know human trials of this, but it's it's having uh, positive results in in animal trials. Um, how do you go about? the the healing process like how how would you how would you help somebody yeah well i think um supporting someone through international trauma has to start with first that piece of self-awareness that exists right um and to understand that that, you know what you're going through the mindsets that you have inherited over you know generations can be passed on if you're not aware of that and so that's the first piece. And then, you know, the embodied healing part is actually understanding how, um, you know, ever since in the womb, um, if your mother, so, you know, I, I, in my training in social work, you know, I was learning how even, even from the womb with your mom or the person that bears you has some level of trauma has been in domestic violence or, sexual violent relationships with their partner while having you, you can experience prenatal birth trauma. And so that actually develops more cortisol stress hormone in the baby and the baby is born with higher levels of stress um, in their DNA um, and body system. Right. And so, you know, when that, and then, you know, coupled with the environmental factors, if you're the, the, the mother, the parental figure that gives birth um, is still around that partner and the baby growing up, um, then obviously that could cause more friction and um, more um, alertness, uh, traumatized uh, body system, uh, right? And so for me, you know, how do I, um, you know, how do I ingrain this practice within the work that I do? Um, is to practice with different tools and try to get people back into their body system because oftentimes when you you feel threatened or you feel endangered, the the, the body naturally knows how to protect itself. Mm. And so it will go through the flight. So fleeing from the situation or it'll uh, learn how to fight if you can't flee. And if you can't do either of that, then you freeze or you numb out the situation, right? And so a lot of the practices that I'm constantly learning about um, is also somatics, uh, which has to do with um, individual and collective healing as it relates to um, the environmental forces that also impact the way one is able to heal um, uh, in their body systems and their heart systems. Because oftentimes, again, too, we're moving into a more cerebral environment where we're always like in our head. We're always doing, doing, doing. We're in front of the computer half the time. And so people are checked out of the body system. So somatics is uh, incorporated movement work, physical movement work to actually acknowledge where the trauma is in the body and to not only um, acknowledge that, but to, but to uh, have it go through the body system and out of the body system. Oh. And so, you know, people have learned over time, especially in our communities, um, dance rituals or, you know, singing rituals, um, you know, that in itself is a not, uh, you know, I don't know. That in itself, I feel like it's a really great way to go back to traditional forms of healing, right? Mm. Um, as opposed to the Western model and just talk therapy and things of that sort. Um, and so, you know, I try to incorporate all of these different modalities and give people uh, opportunity to see that they have choice in them, right? Whatever helps them is the healing is a very individual and personal process as much as identity is as well. And so, you know, um, in terms of international healing, you know, 
that that womb, it starts from the womb. <laughs> and, you know, if I could share, like, you know, in, in, in that context, right, from the wee moment you were conceived, you know, you develop different cellular structures to help you survive and evolve over time. And so, um, you know, as, as much as we acknowledge that, that, yes, we can create our own uh, narratives and stories, we have to acknowledge where these patterns are coming from. So, I, I, I try to cultivate as much as a non-judgmental and safe space for people to um, come into their own healing work. Ah, that's amazing. I'm going to go on a, a little bit of a, a, a tangent or a rant here. Yeah. And I'm going to unpin what we pinned before. Um, it's also probably going to sound cheesy. I don't really care. Um, sorry, I can't hear. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, 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 I can hear you now. Okay, cool. Well, how how do I organize my thoughts around this? I've had two um, Lao guests on the podcast before. One was Van Bender, who I mentioned to you earlier. And I met her in California. Um, she introduced me to her whole family. I met her mother, cousins. We all had this giant meal together. And it was honestly one of the highlights of my year. It was really an, an incredible experience. Oh. Prior to that, I had a chef on the podcast who lives here in Brooklyn. His name is Manila. Um, and he also like invited me into his home to do the podcast. We had some Lao whiskey. Um, I've had his food before, which is absolutely amazing. And so uh, my experiences with both of these guests and now with yourself have all been these amazingly positive experiences. Not to to be, I don't want to stereotype a culture, right? By this, have fun. Uh, not to stereotype a whole culture and be like, wow, those people are so friendly, right? Because I think that, that in itself is can be problematic. But um, these have been just really enriching, positive experiences that this podcast has opened me up to. And... I've taken this podcast around the world. Prior to that, I had like a cheesy solo episode where I talked about my experiences in Luang Prabang. So I don't, you know, I've been to one place in Laos, so I, I can't say I'm an expert. It's the only place in Laos I can really talk about in any sort of educated way. But some, some things that I can recall are flying into the city and you're flying through this, in these, the lush green mountains that again, sounding cheesy and whatever, uh, it looks like it's breathing. Like it looks like a living, breathing organism. It's so green and it's misty and you're flying in over the Mekong, which looks like, honestly looks like, like melted caramel, right? Cause the river's just, just straight up brown and it's flowing and it's gorgeous. And when you land, it's hot as hell, but the air is just super crisp. And Luang Prabang is an amazing place to go if you've been backpacking through Southeast Asia and you've hit some of the crazy cities, right? Like capital cities, like, like, like Bangkok, which is just noisy and sensory overload and wild. And even Ho Chi Minh city at night can be sensory overload and the sounds and the sights and the smells. And it's just wild. And you get to Luang Prabang and it has a bit of that. And you know, there's night markets, but it's, it's relaxed and you feel like you can take a, a breath and the food is incredible. It's, it's sticky rice with everything. There's these amazing like outdoor sort of vegetarian buffets where you just fill up your plate from all the different foods that are there. And, you know, beer Lao or beer Lao dark. And I went to uh, Kwangsi Waterfall, which was just an amazing and gorgeous experience. And I say all this to say that my impressions of Laos and of Lao culture are all these really positive, amazing things. And, oh man, I get emotional sometimes with this stuff because this podcast has enriched my life in such a way that I love sharing mm -hmm. these stories and turnkeying this stuff because I want other people to experience what I've experienced and to have that passion. But to go mm -hmm. back to your point that, you know, there are Lao actors and actresses and authors and MMA fighters fighting for the one organization, which is all over the world, and, you know, people doing amazing things. And I think it's important that we recognize that and we recognize what a beautiful country it is and can be and what an amazing culture it is and can be. And that we shouldn't just think of Laos as a place that has gone through trauma, not to diminish it, mm -hmm. 
but it's the same way in when I first started going to Vietnam, I went three years in a row, mm-hmm. you know, some family members and people who only, their only context of Vietnam is the Vietnam war. Yeah. And they say like, well, why? Like, why would you go there? Or what's it like? And it's like, oh, it's a freaking amazing place. Like, you have to go. Vietnam is not the Vietnam War in the way that Laos is not unexploded, unexploded ordinances. Yes, that's there. And that's something that needs to be addressed. And the United States needs to address better. It needs to fund better. And we need to fix that. And we need to heal people from it. But I think to your point, it's also like vitally important that we see uh, what an amazing group of people and culture, you know, Lao Americans and, and, and Lao are in general. So that's just a, a, yeah. a, a long rant. Sorry. Yeah, no, it, I, you're right. I mean, like there's just so much, I mean, like seeing, for example, like same as like in LA, people think of when they come to LA, it's just like Hollywood. Right. But no, down the street, four blocks downtown, you will see the largest homeless population in the nation yeah. uh, located there. But no one highlights that, you know, like um, because of what money and profit, tourist attraction, things of that sort. Um, and so we have to take the good with the bad, the bad with the good. Um, and so for me, like part of this project is always highlighting that nuance. It's like as much as we have maybe an issue of addiction and gambling in our community, but there's also people um, doing good work and healing and being loud about it. And, you know, that's something that I, I think over time it's carried on from our motherland. Um, and I, I want people to see like, you know, how resistant and resilient we are as people that we're not going to take shit, you know, for nobody yeah. <laughs> as my dad, you know, my dad and mom had taught me, but at the same time, like how giving we are as people, how, just uh, loving we are, how relaxed we are, but also how hardworking we are. So um, we we also deserve a very um, dynamic and multi-layered narrative in all of that. What has been your experience with uh, responses from Lao people who find you and find the podcast and can connect through the you know, oh. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what has that been like for you? I'm sure it's amazing, but it's also probably pretty heavy and emotional. Oh yeah. No, it has been incredibly um, healing for me um, to know that other people are reaching out and saying that they don't feel as alone anymore. And it's so comforting. And I just feel so grateful that, that I took the leap I'm proud of myself for doing that and just to understand that there is that need. Um, and I didn't honestly didn't, I honestly did not know how it was going to turn out when I first let it go because it's such a vulnerable experience, right? Like you put yourself, you're out there, um, you're letting everybody know very intimate information about you and you know very little about them. And just the response has created a massive global community that I never thought it would come this far. I mean, you know, on top of that, people have actually seen Healing Out Loud as a resource uh, for the Asian diaspora. So I've got outreach from other Southeast Asian communities as well, other Asian communities that, you know, love this work. And so I'm hoping to continue to build on Healing Out Loud as a resource for not only Lao folks, but overall um, Southeast Asian and Asian folks, but again, because that there's such low representation, I was keep it, you know, representing Lao stories. Um, but for me, it's been a really healing experience, just knowing that. Well, I, I am not alone, right? You know, like it proved my theory to be true. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's like I am not here, <laughs> uh, you know, crying about this this thing. It's like there there's a collective community of us that are grieving that are mourning, that are seeking resources and just want to better ourselves. And so I'm just, you know, very, you know, very pleased um, with how everything turned out. That's amazing. You know, the the podcast is still relatively new. um, And so there's many more guests to have. There's growth and expansion. Do you envision a long-term goal? Because, you know, not to like over flatter the pro like over flatter you with the process here. But like, I could see, you know, if you turn this into uh, a, a television series and like each episode is a different story of a guest who's on the podcast or, or something like, do you, do you have long-term growth plans like that? Or are you just taking this like one guest at a time? 
Oh, thank you for that question. And yeah, it's growing so fast that I am trying to pace myself, of course, with one guest at a time, but at the same time, I'm a visionary. So I would love to be, love Healing Out Loud to be a multimedia platform where uh, either this, there's that TV series that comes out on YouTube, there, you know, IG has that option to also make it a TV series. Um, and and eventually, maybe get it on a major network um, because right now a lot of the resources are coming from me and the, the you know my friends and um, people that uh, you know really care about this project. And so um, I'm hoping that you know in season two I'm actually able to create more of a visual, right? To not have just the uh, audio, even though um, that's something that's still very powerful. Um, and then, you know, Healing Out Loud itself, I never intended it to just be a podcast. Uh, I'm always thinking about new ways to channel what this concept is and how to apply it and um, a lot of different uh, Lao communities across the world. And so I um, not only see it as an entity for podcasting, but also for coaching, for consulting, for wellness workshopping uh, and things of that sort. So um, who knows where it's going to be, but um, yeah, a bigger vision will be to build a team um, centered, you know, around the Lao identity and to cultivate, um, yeah, like empowering force all across the world. That's awesome. Um, how can people find it? Find you? Let's plug some of your some of your stuff here. Yeah! So people can find you. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find Healing Out Loud on social media. Uh, it's at Healing Out Loud. That's loud, L-A-O-D, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, and then if you want to tune into the podcast, uh, it is on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. And then the website itself is www.healingoutloud.com org and then everything is absolutely um very accessible there so you can continue to see the different services that i offer um, including consulting coaching or workshopping and um hit me up also on my personal if you're interested in connecting with me send a dm to at rita mixa and i'll respond <laughs> and you have really cool t-shirts that you can get in like any colorway um, so yes! people should buy those too. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's actually 35% off right now, <laughs> but it's, um, T public. And, um, also that is on, um, the website link. Um, so you can just click and peruse there and you can just shop for healing out loud gear. And so not only t-shirts, there's also mugs, there's hoodies, there's tote bags, there's canvases. It's just like everything you've ever imagined. <laughs> It's there. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, thank you for doing this. Thank you for sharing your story. Thanks for trusting in me to help share your story. Uh, like I said, it, you know, this isn't what I do for a living, but it's, you know, been something that's enriched my life in ways that a career never could. Uh, so I love meeting people through this and sharing stories and, and, and learning and helping people to learn. So I appreciate you for being a part of it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor. And, you know, from one podcaster to another, yeah, like I truly understand how, um, you know, intricate this work is, but also so rewarding when you can just live and uh, breathe through somebody else's uh, shoes. So thank you so much for this opportunity. That is a wrap, Voyagers, on episode 130 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Rita for joining the podcast, to her community of listeners. If you're listening for the first time, thanks for checking this out. To the faithful Voyagers, thank you so much for listening as always. And everybody out there, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.